I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And today, we've got a few different kind of litigious situations that are going on. The first topic is around what's going on with TikTok and uh, the U.S. government. There are, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth. Microsoft might buy TikTok. Oracle might buy TikTok. And I've just really struggled with the TikTok acquisition. It, it, it sounds nice on the surface. When you dive deeper into it, uh, it just kind of is, I don't know, just fraught for a lot of execution risk for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, TikTok is trying to sell their US business and then their India business separately. And then what they'd be giving source code to two separate entities and how do you transition the personnel who are all based in China? And there are just so many problems with this. I, I don't think really anyone should buy TikTok. And I, I think their future is um, in trouble. But here is what they've recently decided to do. Looks like they're going to sue the U.S. government because they're saying that they were never able to, um, they were not provided due process and they didn't have the ability to show that they aren't a national security threat. Um, so, you know, do they have any, uh, do they have any uh, stance or footing or will this be successful? And the answer is no, it will not be successful. Um, you know, what everyone very easily neglects to mention, this is really where a lot of this precedent comes from. Uh, Grinder sold by Chinese owner after U.S. raised national security concerns. Grinder is the Tinder for the LGBT community. They had to sell it. And why is that? It's the CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Um, and basically, this committee had conducted their own analysis of TikTok operating in the United States. And this committee came back and raised the national security concern, similar to the concerns that they found for Grindr being bought by this Chinese entity, Beijing Kunlun. Similar concerns as it was for Grindr, as it is for TikTok. So, you know, when this happened and when this, uh, the acquisition had been completed and then they basically reversed it, the review has been done. The analysis and the recommendation had been given to the president. And, you know, I, I actually think the president has power regardless of the CFIUS analysis and how it comes back to ban the, you know, a foreign entity from operating in the United States if there's national security concern. The president is actually given a very wide degree of uh, power and uh, lateral movement to take action or unilateral action. But not only does the president have huge powers to provide these bans or, you know, uh, restrictions on foreign entities operating in the U.S., but coupled with the CFIUS assessment, uh, you have, you know, you have uh, 
a lot of evidence verifying that uh, you know this decision is under the purview and and it ha- and is able to be made. This was opened back up in November of 2019. U.S. opens national security investigation into TikTok. It's literally the same exact deal structure as Grinder, right? Um, I don't think many people know, but TikTok was acquired by ByteDance. TikTok used to be known as this company called Musical.ly. They bought it for a billion dollars. So just for the same reasons that the Committee on Foreign Investment analyzed the Grinder acquisition, same thing. They've analyzed the Musical.ly acquisition and came back with, with recommendation to say there's national security concerns here. I think this lawsuit's futile. Uh, another just kind of, you know, I guess just a delay. I think that's really what the strategy is. I think they're just trying to delay any action from being taken or trying to get it hung up in the courts. You know, maybe if you file it in the right court, you can get a favorable decision and then you go to appeal and, you know, now you're a few. I think they're just trying to delay. It helps them to negotiate an acquisition with any of the potential suitors, A. And B, I think the hope is that if um, they get a, they being China, you know, if if a more favorable candidate wins the election in November, then maybe they have more room to negotiate or they could try and change this if Biden becomes president as opposed to Trump being reelected. So, you know, I think this is really just a move on them to try and buy time. And, um, you know, I think, I think that's probably a smart decision, right? You want to just buy time. You want to try and push these timelines back, both if you are trying to sell yourself and, you know, if, if you can have uh, a, 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 a more favorable negotiating environment with a, with a Biden presidency. So we'll see. Um, what's interesting, though, is that there's this other report that Zuckerberg warned Trump uh, about the rise of the Chinese tech firms. And Zuckerberg's had dinner maybe at least once or twice with the president. You know, selfishly, it's it's good that the U.S. government tried to focus more so on, um, you know, for Facebook, selfishly, right? It's better that the U.S. government tried to focus on Chinese tech companies operating in the U.S. than going after our U.S. tech monopolies. And, um, you know, generally, I would say, I mean, there are problems and legitimate concerns in both scenarios. Yeah, but if you had to choose one or the other, which you you frankly don't, you <laughs> there's enough resources on the government. The government is so big that you know they could do many things at the same time if they wanted to. But yeah, if you were to have to choose one, certainly it'd be better for Facebook that they choose the former to look at foreign tech firms, specifically Chinese tech firms operating in the US. Um, and so what was interesting with this is, you know, he really started, I mean, I'm sure the seed has been planted by many different people, but uh, there's a there's a sentence in here which I thought was pretty good. Around the time of the dinner, Zuckerberg warned US officials and lawmakers that Chinese tech firms pose a risk to American values and the nation's technological dominance. Tech mogul is also said to have pointed out that TikTok, owned by ByteDance, doesn't share Facebook's commitment to freedom of expression. The interesting thing is, and and when I was reading Larry Summers' interview from the information, 
um, that publication, which I don't know, they're, they're writing. I, I, I take issue with a lot of how they frame these things. But in the interview that they had with Larry Summers, where he says, oh, well, uh, you know, it's not clear to me that that TikTok and ByteDance is using this data to to enable the CCP, to en- enable the Chinese government. Um, and there's there's this seemingly rhetoric in the United States that is kind of claiming ignorance about, oh, well, if it's a Chinese tech company, is that data actually going back into the government and so on and so forth? And I, I think that's just kind of, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? You know, it's just naive. Um, I think there's an abundance of evidence and uh, it, it is it is a very safe assumption to have a universal understanding that these large Chinese tech monopolies um, are directly linked to the CCP. Um, earlier on in the show, we've talked about this a lot, where there are actual entire divisions of Chinese government officials inside of these companies. They have offices. They're actually, you know, down the hall kind of kind of relationship. They've put teams of government officials into these companies, um, and these government officials are there to help monitor the content, curate the content, what is being allowed, what is being banned, and so on and so forth. We've we've shown plenty of reports, right? It's it's actually publicly admitted by a lot of these um, big Chinese tech companies that they have these kind of government divisions or government personnel in the business helping them work through all these uh, matters. So it's just very peculiar to me why, you know, a lot of folks in the kind of tech world like to kind of uh, claim that they that they haven't seen the linkage. They don't know if if the data from TikTok is actually being fed back into the the Chinese government or not and so on and so forth. I mean, at this point it's kind of comical, frankly. Uh, but but in in a very uh pained way, not not truly funny. Um just kind of frustratingly ignorant. Um but I digress. The next thing that we're seeing is this thing going on with uh, Epic Games versus Apple. So basically, here's what happened. Epic has Fortnite. They have iOS apps for Fortnite, even though the, even though the game originated on other consoles besides you know phones. It was on the computer, and it was on your consoles like Xbox and PlayStation, and then it, it made its way to smartphones. So now Apple's responded to the lawsuit from Epic Games saying that they asked for special treatment. They said, hey, the CEO emailed us to try to get special exceptions and carve-outs. Basically, Epic Games released a direct payment mechanism inside Fortnite designed to bypass the App Store's payment system from which Apple takes a 30% cut. Apple then removed Fortnite from its store for violating its policies. It, It... it's just more of these, like, um, I don't know. It's like I'm living in an alternate reality or something where, you know, what is painstakingly obvious and, and straightforward and simple just somehow magically becomes confusing to everyone. And, and, and you know, like, it, it, what is it? They, I guess they said that uh, Steve Jobs did it, like, uh, you know, uh, he, he, would, he would alter reality and kind of had this like perception change on people. Um, 
And so you have here, this is the, this is the CEO of Epic. And I like this guy, Tim. He's taken a stance on, you know, some hard issues about even though Tencent is an investor, Chinese tech monopoly, Tencent is an investor in Epic, you know, saying that um, they would keep their independence and all these kinds of things. I, I like Tim, but but this is that kind of just distorted reality here. He says, today, Apple said Epic is seeking a special deal. That's not true. We're fighting for open platforms and policy changes equally benefiting all developers. And here it'll be a hell of a fight. I want all iOS developers are free to process payments directly. All users are free to install software from any source. I, I just don't know what world this guy is living in. I mean... Maybe you just make a huge ask or, you know, you have a lawsuit and and you're setting the, the goalposts all the way over here in the hopes that, you know, you're never going to get all the way over here on that end of the spectrum. But because you anchor the conversation or you anchor the lawsuit at such an extreme point, if you can if you can win here, you know, then that's or if you settle here, then that's a win. Maybe that's the strategy. But it just doesn't make any sense, right? Literally, since over a decade now, Apple takes 30% of in-game app purchases, okay? I mean, this was actually the original category of apps that first had in-app monetization. So gaming, it was the first category of apps. If we rewind, I don't know, like what, 13 years ago now back to the app store and, you, and, and, you know, back then all you would be able to do is basically it was free apps or paid apps. The whole idea of like, you know, in-app purchasing was new at that time. So it was free or paid. And then Apple launched for games, for game developers, the functionality to let let you download a game for free and then monetize the usage. So let you sell in-game items. This started with gaming apps. This was literally the genesis of the freemium app model. And so now what Tim is saying is, this is unfair. <laughs> and Apple should take nothing from the transaction. The The irony in this is just so bonkers to me. There, there are just so many contradictions that this guy is just swimming in. And, and I guess just hoping people don't call him out on. I mean, Microsoft takes a fee, okay, on the Xbox, right? So does PlayStation, Sony. Um, and on the PC, where, where, where Fortnite started... They launched their own app store competitive to the incumbent, the the current incumbent, which is uh, Steam, uh, owned by Valve. And that was a PC game store. Now, Epic launched their own game store to be competitive with that. So, I mean, this guy understands platforms very well. We've actually studied what Epic did with their PC game store on the show and talked about why it was a big win for them. But... You know, he just wants it his way. And he, I think he's willing to say whatever it is, right? We're fighting for open platforms to benefit all developers. And this means that all users are, you know, developers are free to process payments directly. And you don't have to pay the gatekeeper anything. I, there's just there's just no basis for this. There's no precedent for this. The strategy or what they say, the point of this, just like the TikToks lawsuit and this thing, it's just... 
there's got to be some kind of ulterior motive here because the guy's a smart guy and there's no way he's going to win this. So, you know, maybe he's just trying to curry some favor. And again, it's not like Epic and Fortnite is hurting. It's not like, for example, we've seen uh, Spotify sue Apple. And that is a much better lawsuit because in that scenario, Apple is vertically integrating and is competing with Spotify, right? They have Apple Music. As we've covered on the show, where platforms get into trouble is when they compete with their supply, when they compete with their producers. Uh, Epic would be a producer, but is is Apple creating its own version of and uh, like a like a shooter Fortnite competitor, and then and then launching that? No, they're not. You know, they just have a rule, which is if you want to buy stuff in the app, you pay us thirty percent. It's literally been around for over a decade. There's no special treatment, or there's no kind of special attack that they took on Epic or Fortnite. Spotify though has much more precedent in their lawsuit because Apple Music doesn't have to pay a thirty percent. Right, you can sign up for Apple Music. Apple could price Apple Music at the same as where Spotify is. But because Spotify has to pay 30% to Apple, you know, Apple is a big, you know, has basically 30 extra points of margin because they don't, they don't have to pay the gatekeeper. They are the gatekeeper. And so that's where you see platforms get into trouble when they vertically integrate and they compete with their suppliers, with their producers. Um, Apple's not even doing that. So like the, just the, the risk of this lawsuit to Apple versus other lawsuits that they've had, um, and some are still ongoing. I mean, this this is even on the radar. Um, just again, just more of these kind of crazy things that uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they just the media wants to cover some stuff. Maybe it's a slow news day. I don't know. Um, last one. Okay, last one. Let me back up. Did my topics weird today? So. Um, the information. This uh, publication, which I'll show you a couple examples about why the way they write these articles, you know, they just make these kind of like um, overgeneralized statements, which are just not true. And uh, they, they report good material, but then they, they take it a step further and then they make these just grand statements, which which really detract, I think, from the quality of the article or the point they're trying to get across. Okay, now, and it's loading forever. But basically, while that loads, here's what happened. Domeo is one of a few of these short-term rental startups. A short-term rental startup is a business. It's a linear business. They own the inventory. Inventory is on their balance sheet. They basically take apartments. They're furnished, and they rent them on Airbnb, VRBO, directly to the consumer if they can. Just an alternative to hotels, just like what Airbnb is providing. Think of it as like professionally managed inventory on Airbnb. Uh, so you have, you know, you have a certain quality and brand with each one of these apartments, right? So if you're a consumer, it's like a, it's a Domeo branded apartment. There's a few other of these companies, Sonder, uh, Lyric, which is having a lot of trouble. I mean, all these companies are having trouble because of the pandemic. Um, and, and all their inventory are in these more highly populated areas, metropolitan areas. And um, so they're all having a difficult time. It's a very um, capital intensive business. You have these leases on your balance sheet, right? They are actually leasing these properties and then essentially reselling them on these short-term rental sites like Airbnb. When you look at the listing growth on Airbnb, 
and where that's coming from, actually a lot of it is coming from these kind of professional listers. Um, you know, people that actually have a real business listing properties on Airbnb as opposed to where Airbnb started, which is with, uh, you know, like user generated, right? I, this is my, this is my home. This is my apartment. Maybe you have two homes. Maybe you're just out of town and you're going to, you're going to list, um, you're going to list out that, uh, inventory when you're gone. So this is, it's actually also from the information from a while ago. So you can see here in the, in the red are, are um, dark red are full homes, uh, available less than six months. So, you know, think about that as again, kind of that original user, um, these, this is someone's home. They're, they're now leaving for vacation or whatever. They have a second home. So the red, you can see that declining year over year. Right? These are kind of that, that classic user-generated content. Private rooms, same thing. This is the um, kind of lightly shaded red. Uh, that's declining year over year. Private rooms, right? So I now have a house and I'm renting out a room in that house. So if you think about those two buckets... Um, those buckets are people's primary residences, right? The, the dark red and the medium red, the, I don't know what this is like a light brown red, the lightest one of the three. And the one that is growing year over year are full homes available more than six months. Clearly not a primary residence. If it's being available for more than six months out of the year. Why this is important is because a lot of the rules and laws that local municipalities, towns, states have put into place revolve around whether or not you are renting a primary residence on Airbnb um, or, or if you are in the business of you know, buying a home and an apartment and then renting it out on, on these sites. There's a whole bunch of reasons why this is like the critical kind of uh, criteria. Uh, and there's a bunch of legitimate reasons and then, you know, uh, not so fun reasons, kind of corrupt reasons, but hey, that's life. So you got a mixture. You got a whole range of reasons why, but that's kind of what it is. Like New York City, they look at, is this your primary residence that you're renting versus, you know, are you, and, and do you own it and you're renting it versus, are you renting it uh, from a landlord and then you're re-renting it and all these other kinds of considerations. So um, that's also why this is looking at, that chart was looking at kind of full homes. Anyway, the point is, um, this Domeo article came out on the information recently. How one rental startup gamed Airbnb. And they make a lot of really legitimate points here. Basically, you had a bunch of these employees at Domeo um, claiming that they had these private residences in Nashville that talks about or New York City and then renting those on Airbnb and then giving Domeo control to manage the rental and all that kind of stuff. So it in the eyes of Airbnb and I guess the city, um, it was a a primary residence for many for for many of these cases, which they catalog in the article, it was not the primary residence. So that was not true. That was a lie, and um, that's a problem because not only are you 
lying to Airbnb, you're 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 lying to the 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 city, the state that you're in. Um, but also, you know, it's a it's a company sanctioned lie. And this was a systemic thing, right? They'd hire new managers in a market, and then they'd say, "Great, now go." verify yourself with Airbnb, put your driver's license into Airbnb so they could put more listings up, right? So it would help the business. And 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 the information does a good job kind of cataloging these issues um, and all these violations and so on and so forth. And basically, if you th- think about Airbnb, uh, they have gotten around a lot of these issues, regulatory issues. They're supposed to go public in, in September by being neutral and saying, hey, you know what? Kind of like we're going to turn a blind, blind eye. Um, hey, renters, you need to follow the rules from the city or state that you operate in. And that's our policy, right? Airbnb is not here to advocate on behalf of the renter. Airbnb. Um, I think for the most part does not release renter information to the the cities who would then, you know, try to look at the renters and then see if which ones of them are are lying. So they've kept a a wall there from sharing information with the cities, but by no means is Airbnb actively advocating to try and you know, aggressively change the rules and laws. They've kind of taken a, a a back seat to this and let the cities and states, you know, put in their own rules around this um, and, uh, and, and say, protect the hotel industry and, and different industries like that. If someone is vi- caught in violating these rules and Airbnb kicks you off the platform, that's pretty much the stance, right? If it's kind of brought to their attention or you're falsifying information, then they ban you. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say they're like aggressively trying to vet all of these renters as diligently as they could. Otherwise, they'd probably kill off half the inventory on the site. Um, but when there is a violation or someone does get caught who's breaking the rules, then they say, oh, that was really bad of you, renter, and I'm kicking you off. And Airbnb is not responsible. That's kind of the stance. Now, this was not always the case. When Airbnb was getting going, they actually participated in a lot of very gray matter type of policies. We actually cover a few of those in the book. Like they were going on Craigslist and they were posting ads and listings on Craigslist or they were messaging people on Craigslist to harvest users off of Craigslist. They had, you know, a a myriad of listings which were clearly in violation. I mean, the regulation today has been written to account for the Airbnb and VRBOs of the world. But when Airbnb was starting in its first few years, those laws didn't account for a marketplace for short-term rental. So literally, Airbnb was in violation, and Airbnb's business was actually illegal in its top 20 markets for the first like three to five years of the company's existence. So the reason I bring this up is because you know, once your business gets to that breakout scale, once you kind of get to that um, critical mass uh, uh, point where where you have really turned consumer behavior um, into into your backcourt, right? Where 
consumer behavior is behind you. Consumers want to use your product or service. You create so much value for for consumers and probably producers as well that it would be too difficult for the state or the government or the city to ban you outright. And you know, one could argue that every platform business is kind of a hedge against the regulation at the time. Can the platform business get that breakout velocity, get enough scale before the regulators catch up or ban the service, right? Or can the platform scale fast enough, create enough goodwill, uh, PR, brand, reputation that society deems it to be good, essentially, and that the officials can't ban this outright? Um, In other countries, we have seen services like Uber and Airbnb banned outright, um, just for, for reference. And... So, you know, I would say to some degree, every platform business is kind of a hedge against regulation. Can you scale fast enough to, to overcome it? Um, but my issue with these kinds of articles is that Domeo, along with better known companies like Lyric and Saunders, and since its founding, the company has raised $70 million in venture capital, along with $50 million in debt. It has hired uh, upwards of 160 employees and has had over 100,000 travelers use its services. Airbnb's official response to this is we have indefinitely suspended all of Domeo's associated host accounts and listings as we expand our investigation into their activity dating back to 2016. We will not hesitate to take aggressive action to remove suspicious content from our platform And depending on the outcome of our investigations, we will determine the appropriate long-term action to take against these accounts. Let's pause there. I'm willing to guarantee that people inside of Airbnb knew what Domeo was doing. This is not some shocker news to Airbnb. Airbnb, very smart people. Lots of good data. There's actually a function all these managers were assigning their, uh, their primary residence homes over to Domeo. So you don't think that some you know, um, supply side manager at Airbnb would look at Domeo, who, as the information says, has raised collectively over $100 million between uh, equity and debt capital, that this business with over $100 million in funding, over 100,000 customers over the past four years, that no one at Airbnb said, hmm, I wonder if Domeo has a systemic problem. I wonder if they're kind of skirting our rules and issues. Because by the way, Airbnb has taken action against a few specific accounts of Domeo's on Airbnb, and they treated them as kind of individual cases. But they never launched a broader investigation. What this article from The Information talks about is that Airbnb would kind of kick off these these one-off circumstances when, say, Nashville was getting grumpy at, at some of the Domeo people, and then Airbnb would take action, right? But now that the story is blown up, now all of Domeo is under review. So again, Airbnb is not the um, kind of angel in this story. Airbnb knows what's going on here, okay? It is in their best interest to take some action but not ultra-aggressive action. Because otherwise, Airbnb would have a big problem. As we saw in the first graph, all of the growth in listings is coming from these kinds of more professional 
uh, <laughs> renters. So Airbnb is kind of in a very precarious position on this one. But here's my other issue with the reporting. Then they go, so they talk about all of Domio's infidelities and they say, but it's unusual for a startup with prominent VC backers like Domio to employ such tactics. And here's the problem with this kind of, you know, these just kind of like blanket fake statements. It's just not true. All of these platform startups, and this isn't even a platform startup, Domio, but so many startups and a lot of the platform startups for not just like a few months, but a few years. And in those few years, they're getting money from these prominent VC investors. They are hacking their way to not like computer hacking, but business hacking, product hacking, uh, user acquisition hacking. They are trying out a bunch of different creative tactics. We've seen Uber get ridden up on a bunch of these, right? Where they would have like literally like burner cell phones and credit cards and they'd have employees go take lifts to try to recruit the lift drivers while in, in the passenger seat, right? I mean, or they were doing it maliciously and booking lift rides and then canceling on the drivers last minute, right? Like every platform has these war stories. Not saying that the war stories are okay, but you know, I feel like this article unfairly makes Domeo out to be some horrible startup business that is so unique to the real estate industry that no other one of these real estate startups would ever do something like this. And it's just not true, right? Airbnb itself has done a lot of these things. And Airbnb itself, I guarantee, knew long before any state, New York City, Nashville knew, they knew what Domeo was doing. And so, I don't know. I just feel like these articles take a very aggressive stance against, uh, you know, uh, against the company that everyone wants to beat up on. They don't do justice in terms of <clears throat> providing an equal spec or an equal assessment of all the parties <clears throat> and how they have behaved. So, with, with these blanket statements like that, right? Like Domio is the exception. Domio is not the exception. Let's look at what Airbnb is doing in Japan because this is interesting. Airbnb is legal in Japan. Uh, historically, Airbnb had been banned in, not Airbnb, but any of this kind of short-term rental cottage industry. It was just wholesale banned in Japan. The interesting thing about Japan is a lot of Japan is actually uh, very centralized and federally controlled. They have an idea of states and like provinces, but but those states and provinces don't have nearly the amount of authority or ability to, for example, set their own taxes that states in the United States do. So there's much less autonomy given to these local kind of regions and provinces and states in Japan. Everything is is actually very federally centralized controlled. It's a whole other separate topic, which I think is a big challenge for Japan. If you want to embrace innovation and different ways of doing things, whether it's with technology or just other systems and press, very hard to manage all of that centrally. With, with short-term rentals in Japan, in June of 2018, uh, Japan imposed new home sharing regulations that affected Airbnb listings throughout the country. Initially, the number of listings dropped significantly. They were like halved as many owners were not prepared to comply. Um, and then as, as Airbnb has built out tools, the, the business is coming back pretty nicely. Um, as a result of the new regulations, all Airbnb hosts in Japan must register their listing and display a license number on their listing page. 
Uh, and then Airbnb removed non-compliant listings. So if property in Japan has a listing on Airbnb, it's legitimate, it has one of these codes. So, you know, you're seeing you're seeing different operating models um, for, you know, platform companies and how what role do they take on relative to the government? How aggressively do they fight regulation? Um, how much of it do they kind of just put on the on the seller or the producer, for example? It's it's a moving target. None of this stuff is static. We're seeing right now Uber and Lyft in California, AB5, uh, you know, prompting to leave the state. So <clears throat> it's a constant battle. And if you if you take a giant step back and you think about it, the regulation and the laws currently in place were built for a world not inhabited by platforms right? Literally, platform businesses did not exist 30 years ago. Nope. Microsoft really being the first platform tech monopoly. You know, there's other businesses like we talk about AT&T and Ma Bell in the book that have network effects. There's other businesses that have had network effects, but really having demand and supply, consumer producer, this two-sided relationship facilitating exchange, really Microsoft the first one that really hit that scale. And so when you just think about rules and laws, whether local, state, federal, US, Japan, elsewhere, there is a constant back and forth between platform business models, which by definition are disruptive, which by definition are going to change how an industry operates and how value is exchanged and monetized. And so I think if you t- if you look at this, you know, at a high level and you say to yourself all these platform businesses technically technically I would argue are going to be in violation of some law when they start. If you're not, you're probably not doing anything disruptive enough, right? These laws have been written decades and decades ago and they were written a lot of them influenced by lobbyists and, you know, by big business that had a linear business model, right? So the you got a big business with lobbyists and this is how their business operates in a linear fashion. So the laws are going to be put into place with that linear business model in mind. Which means that when you have a new business model, the platform business model come along, it changes a lot of that. Doesn't mean that these businesses are deliberately trying to, you know, break the law and defraud customers and suppliers and you know, spread ill will, but it it just means, I mean, take Uber, for example. Uber was illegal in just about every one of its early markets. Airbnb, illegal in just about every one of its early markets for years until the regulators could see the value, until consumers could speak up. They liked this service and they wanted to keep it around. And regulators could understand what the business model is, how it works, and, and you know, and how you could think about uh, regulation through a new mindset, right? So, um, I think, you know, Domeo, for example, here and the role that Airbnb has played, what Airbnb said is, you know, we're not going to fight this anymore. We're going to let every state and jurisdiction figure this out. Domeo clearly doing some deceptive tactics here. All these startups have done deceptive tactics, you know, whether or not those deceptive tactics are viewed, um, very negatively 
uh, or or how much media attention is given to them is 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 a byproduct of a few things, but one, namely, how much breakout scale and velocity can you get? Where now you can clean up a lot of these tactics that helped you kind of play that chicken and egg game initially, and then you know, and and as regulation matures and your business operations mature, now you can kind of operate in code and without without any of these, or at least with less uh, regulatory risk. As we are still seeing, though, irrespective of how big you get, there is always going to be some kind of regulatory risk. Um, whether it's you've gotten so big now you have antitrust regulatory risk at, at, at one end of the spectrum, or you have you know these AB5 law things going on with gig economy workers in California, um, or you have now you know uh, uh, Chinese tech companies coming in, coming into the U.S. and and having regulation there. So. There's a whole spectrum of regulation. Uh, hopefully from today's episode, you could hear a little bit how I think about what legislation is legitimate, what legislation or regulation is actually a threat or needed. For a lot of these U.S. tech companies, <clears throat> uh, they, they are able to get a competitive advantage in the United States, all of, all things being said, everything that I just spoke about in terms of regulation, you compare the United States regulatory uh, environment versus, let's say, Europe. Let's say India, even. India's put in you know, a number of kind of protectionist rules around uh, what foreign platform companies can do or cannot do. They did this to Walmart and Flipkart. When, when Walmart bought Flipkart, kind of like a jet.com in India, India put regulation around what a foreign-owned marketplace can do in terms of being a marketplace versus being a linear reseller. Uh, Europe has a whole bunch of rules around it. So I would still say generally, Japan has a very difficult time with this because it's all centrally uh, ruled, right? So you can't have different states have different rules. It's, it's very um, uh, centralized regulation, which, which means I'd say it's, it's, it's very uh, restrictive. China, you can't even get into. So, you know, you look at the landscape, I would say the U.S. has, you know, a, a still a, uh, a much better operating environment when it comes to regulation and how much that can hamper innovation of these new startups compared to the rest of kind of the geographic climate. I think the U.S. still uh, is, is leading the way. Other environments, like let's say Europe, that have seen a lack of tech startup innovation, unfortunately, I think regulation is a real contributing factor as to why they have struggled to see more innovation. It's not just the, the startup's ability to get going. It's also the investor appetite, right? When, when the investors see all these rules and regulations and fines and you could be banned and all, you know, that investor capital is going to be much harder to come by, much more expensive, just much more scarce. So all of these things feed into each other and the role of regulation um, can be a tool in in the toolbox of any uh, country, or or depending upon you know how much uh, jurisdiction you have, state or you know local municipality, to set your own rules around these things. Right, that can actually be a huge way to say invite uh, more startup innovation or startups to come to your market. Right, because you are creating a, a, a friendlier environment for these innovators to, to take root and get going. So it's very interesting, this balance between regulation 
and, and startup innovation. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining. I'll talk to you later this week.